That song means so much, I think, especially of all that we're dealing with right now. The world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. So just be held. We'll take your copy of God's Word this morning and be turning, if you would, to the very first book, uh, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. And we're going to be in chapters 13 and 19 today. And uh, really, today's message is going to hit you differently depending on what season of life you find yourself. And I imagine... The takeaway for today is going to be a little bit different for each person here, uh, depending on what stage of life that you're in, because we're talking about refocusing. And we started last week by talking about refocusing on our faith. And this morning, we're taking time to talk about refocusing on our family. Somebody said these words. I want you to listen real carefully and think about them with me. To our forefathers, our faith was an experience. To our fathers, our faith was an inheritance. To us, our faith is a convenience. To our children, our faith is a nuisance. Let me say that again. To our forefathers, our faith was an experience. To our fathers, our faith was an inheritance. To us, our faith is a convenience. To our children, our faith is a nuisance. I wonder, will that be true of us? Will it be true of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that our faith will be a nuisance? Uh, Does living for Jesus Christ, does having faith in Jesus Christ really matter? Well, I'm here to tell you that it does. It does matter greatly. It matters tremendously. And it matters not only for eternity, it matters for this life as well. Ray Pritchard wrote the following. I found it very interesting as I prepared for this message. We live in a world that downplays the value of the home. We don't realize the kind of world our children face each day and how things have changed. Now, see if you can find yourself on this list. Kids in the 30s grew up during the Depression. When times were hard, everybody had to work, and a dollar was a lot of money. Kids in the 40s grew up with World War II, Frank Sinatra, and Bogey and Bacall. Kids in the 50s grew up with black and white television. I like Ike, hula hoops, and a kid from Tupelo, Mississippi, named Elvis Presley. Kids in the 60s. Wonder where you are on here. Grew up with the Beatles, LSD, assassinations, the summer of love, Vietnam, and violence in the streets. Kids in the 70s grew up with Charlie's Angels, Disco, Happy Days, MASH, Saturday Night Fever, (laughs) and the Doobie Brothers. Kids in the 80s, so maybe we're getting where you are, grew up with crack cocaine, AIDS, MTV, Pee Wee Herman, Teenage Mutant Mutant Ninja Turtles, Nintendo, and Nightmare on Elm Street. Kids in the 90s grew up with The Simpsons, Friends, Seinfeld, Michael Jordan, Monica Lewinsky, rap music, and Nirvana. Kids in the aughts, the 2000s, grew up with 9-11, The War on Terror, American Idol, Harry Potter, South Park, MySpace, and Hannah Montana. Kids in the teens are growing up with Lady Gaga, Drake, iPhones, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, sexting, and gay marriage. And he said this, our kids see more, they know more, they experience more, and they grow up so much faster. Sex talk is nothing to them because they hear it every day. And he said, against that reality, the words of James Dobson strike home. 
We must make the salvation of our children our number one priority. Nothing else is more important. He's right. The salvation of our children. Growing them up in the faith. Now the truth of the matter is, you cannot save your family members. No matter what you do, you cannot save them. Each person must trust Jesus Christ for themselves. They must come personally and place their faith, repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot save any of your family members. You cannot even save yourself. I can't save myself. Only Jesus can save us. But we can certainly make it easier for our family members to get saved. What do I mean? Well, we can live a consistent Christian life in front of them. We can pray for them. We can share the gospel with them. We can lead them in the faith and teach them and model the gospel in our own life. And this morning, I want to challenge you to refocus on your family. Refocus. We're talking about three key areas. Last week, refocus on your faith. This week, refocus on your family. Remember the definition I gave you when it comes to refocusing? It means to put again in focus, to focus more sharply, to focus once again, to focus once uh, to focus anew. And that's what I want us to do in this series. To do that in these key areas. So last week was our faith. If you didn't get the message, go back and listen to it if you'd like on the podcast or you know, get a copy of it. But today, our family. Our family. We're going to be looking at a story here in Genesis. We're going to begin, as I said, in chapter 13. We're going to move to chapter 19. And it's a very sad story. It's a very negative story. It's a very heart-rending story. In fact, I've already preached through it once today in the first service, and part of me dreads preaching this again. Not because of the truth we're going to learn, but because of the story behind it. Because if I were not calling this Refocus on Your Family, I might would call this message How to Destroy Your Family. How to Destroy Your Family. You say, well, preacher, that would be a very, very strange sermon to preach, How to Destroy Your Family. It even seems contradictory. But my purpose today is not to help you destroy your family. But I want to look at a man today who did destroy his family. He literally destroyed his family. And what I hope we can do is learn some lessons from his life and not repeat the same mistakes in our life. You know, a wise person can learn from somebody else's mistakes. Did you know that? If you're going to be wise, look at other people. Look at their choices and see what the consequences are. And a wise person says, you know what? They took that path. They made that choice. Look what happened. I'm not going to do that. But sad to say, some of us, we have to learn from experience. We have to learn by making the mistakes ourselves. And so we're going to look at a very negative story and hopefully see some positive things in our own family. Does that make sense? Hopefully it will uh, as we get done today. But how to destroy your family. I'm going to give you several things from this man's story. If you want to destroy your family, the first thing you need to do is let selfishness be your guide. Let selfishness be your guide. Now, you're in Genesis 13. Let's pick up the story beginning at verse number 1. Genesis 13, verse number 1. We're looking at the life of Abram and his nephew Lot. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. He went on a journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Adai. Um, to the place of the altar, which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now notice what happened at verse 6. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between 
um, the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. You go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Verse 11 says, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. I think the King James says, towards Sodom. Verse 13 adds an interesting note here, a very important note. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So here we have the story of Abram and Lot. And they're going along journeying, and God had blessed them so much that their flocks and their herds had so grown that the land could not support them, and tensions began to rise between the herdsmen. Let me ask you, does your family ever have any tension? Is there ever any strife in your home? If so, you're not alone. In fact, we know it goes all the way back to the very early family, the earliest family, the Garden of Eden family, Adam and Eve. We know that sin is the cause and Christ is the cure. But Abraham, Abraham here decided he didn't want this to continue. And so he offers a gracious offer to his nephew Lot. Now, Abram could have used his authority and his age and his place to make the choice for Lot, but he says, no, listen, I don't want there to be any tension, any strife between us, so look out on the land. Whatever you choose, I'll take the other part. You go to the left, I go to the right. You know, you have the choice. And if Lot were wise, and maybe at the end of the story, we could even say if Lot could go back and do it all over again, perhaps he would have said something like this, you know what? Uh, Uncle Abraham, you choose. Uh, I don't know what to choose. Or maybe even better yet, listen, I don't want to separate from you. Let's get rid of some of the flocks. Let's get rid of some of the herds. Let's combine it. Let's just go together. Let's journey together in life. And I want to, to walk this journey of faith with you. But that's not what happened. Did you notice what the Bible says that Lot did? Look at verse 10 and 11 again. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And so all the plain of Jordan. And notice what he noticed about it. It was well watered everywhere. It was at the Garden of Eden. And verse 11 says, Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. When I read that, it reminded me of what the Bible says in the earlier part of Genesis when Eve was there talking to the serpent, the devil, in the garden, and she's being tempted. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, it says that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband, and he ate. It reminded me of 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Love not the world, do the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And Lot stood there that day, and he looked out, and he didn't think about God he didn't think about Abram. He didn't think about his family necessarily, which maybe he thought in his own mind he did. Well, look at how good this looks and this will be good for my family and this will be good for me and it's well watered and it's a perfect place. And so he says to Uncle Abram, I'm taking this. And Lot was guided by selfishness and probably greed at this moment. 
And he chose this place. Forget Abram. Forget all that stuff. I'm going to be led by selfishness and greed. We might say he was walking by sight and not by faith. But his first step only took him so far. Verse 12 says he pitched his tent you know, at Sodom or towards Sodom. He's not in Sodom. He's just merely pitching his tent toward it so he can enjoy the benefits of the city but not be in the city itself. And then verse 13 brought in a very interesting detail. Lot probably already knew this, but it says in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And so maybe that's why he didn't go as far. And so as we follow Lot's steps, I want you to notice the journey today is going to be a journey downward. We're not going up with Lot, we're going down with Lot. Here in chapter 13, he's pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now look at chapter 14, this time at verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12 says, They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And so we have in chapter 14, he's gone from the tent. Now he's literally living in the city itself. Now let's fast forward in the story. Chapter 19. We find something else interesting about Lot. So he started out, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He's dwelling in Sodom. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate of Sodom. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, he's moved from pitching his tent towards Sodom to living in Sodom, and now he's in the gate of the city. The gate of the city, beloved, is where business and commercial and judicial activities were conducted. Some scholars believe that Lot was actually an official in the city now. Henry Morris said that evidently Lot himself was now some kind of magistrate of the place. We don't really know, but he's thoroughly entrenched in the city itself. He's not just pitching his tent toward it. He's not just dwelling there. He's now sitting in the gate. And he's there by choice. He's there by choice. Don't forget that as we keep studying. And so if you want to destroy your family, one of the very first things you can do is let selfishness be your guide. Be self-centered, be selfish, and live your life that way. But there's a second thing that we learn from Lot's life. And that is if you want to destroy your family, then you need to surround yourself with wicked people. Surround yourself with wicked people. Look back at chapter 19. We're back in verse 1. It talks about these angels who come. Now, if you remember the story, if you go back to chapter 18, they had visited Abraham. And Abraham had interceded on behalf of Lot. And he had prayed that prayer. And he had asked in chapter 18, verse 32, if there are ten righteous people there, will you destroy the city? And, and the Lord says, no, I will not destroy it if there's ten righteous people. We're going to find out there were not even ten righteous people. Chapter 19, verse 1 now. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground. He said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house. Spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise and early go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the open square. Verse 3 says, but he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. And so <laughs> we find a very hospitable lot here. I mean, he, these angels come in. Uh, he thinks they're just men, obviously, probably. And he just, he welcomes them. He's gracious to them. He feeds them. He's going to house them for the night. And then we begin to see just how wicked this place is. 
the very next verse, verse 4, Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. In other words, bring them out that we may have sexual relationships with these men. And there's the house is surrounded with these people. Now, I wish we could say at this point that the story, that we're at the very worst part of the story, but we're not. Because we keep reading, and the story gets worse and worse. Look at what it says in verse 6. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren. Now, right away, I'm disturbed by that right there. My brethren, do not do so wickedly. Well, at least he's, he's trying to stop them. But then, if he just stopped there, the next verse is one of the most horrible verses, I think, in the whole Bible. What we're about to read. In fact, it's a sickening verse to even read it. But it's part of the story. Look at what it says in verse 8. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. Now I want you to process for a moment what Lot just said. He said, listen, don't mess with the men that are here. I have two virgin daughters. I'll bring them out to you, wicked, vile, perverse men, and you do whatever you want to do with my daughters. And you look at that and you say, well, how can a man get to that point in his life? The story continues as we continue reading here, verse 9. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one, this is the evil, wicked, perverse people, this one, they say this about um, Lot, this one came in to stay here and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, the angels reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. Now let me just ask you a question. And I want you to answer out loud. I want you to think about this question. Now remember who Lot is. He's Abram's nephew. He's the nephew of Abraham. His, his, his uncle is the father of the faith, if you will, Abraham. When you look at what Lot has done here, was Lot a saved man or a lost man? Don't answer out loud, just think in your own heart. Was he a saved man or a lost man? Now, I think a lot of people right off the cuff would say, this man's lost. I mean, how in the world could a saved man act like that? But I want you to write this reference down. We'll talk about it more in a little bit as well. But write this reference down. 2 Peter 2, 6-8. 2 Peter 2, 6-8. 2 Peter 2, 6-8. Let me read you what it says in 2 Peter 2, 6-8. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Now listen. 2 Peter 2, 7. And delivered, listen, righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Over and over again, the Bible says, Lot, by the way, was a righteous man. In other words, he was a saved man. He was a believer. And then we look at his life. And I don't know about you, but it scares me. To realize that a righteous man, someone who knows God, could get to the point in his life where he's living like this. 
Now, was Lot happy in Sodom? It appears not so. Because he says he, he, he vexed his righteous soul. He was oppressed by their filthy conduct. But he chose to stay there. He chose to stay in that wicked place. He chose to stay, to stay there. Surrounding himself with wicked people. I mean ungodly, wicked, vile, perverse people. And it's clear he's not there as a missionary. He was not sent by the International Mission Board to be a missionary there. He was not there as a gospel-anointed herald. He was there because of his own selfishness, his own greed, his own desire, his self-centeredness. He was there in order to get ahead in life. He, he was there, I believe, because it was easy and convenient. There were more advantages. I mean, who wants a tent when you can have a townhouse? But he was in the wrong place. And he knew it because he said he vexed his righteous soul. And there are some places where Christians do not belong. And there are some places where Christians should not go. And you know what? We live in the world. We're surrounded by sin. You have to deal with it. I have to deal with it on a daily basis. You deal with it at work. You deal with it at school, in your neighborhoods, in the community. All around us there are wicked displays, lots of things we have to deal with, things we cannot control. As the opening story talked about our kids see things and hear things and deal with things that a lot of us didn't have to growing up. And they do it on a daily basis. But I'm convinced, my conviction is that you should have as your closest friends, those you hold the nearest and dearest to you, should be those who help you in your journey with Jesus. Yes, we want to reach lost people. Yes, we need to be friendly. We need to reach out with the gospel. We need to do all those things. But I'm talking about your very closest acquaintances, your friends, your bosom friends, I believe should be those who will help you in your journey of faith, who will help you to love Jesus more and serve Him more. I think it's one of the reasons that God gave us the church. We need the fellowship of like-minded believers to deal with the things that we have to deal with on a daily basis. But Lot chose here to surround himself with wicked people. And by the way, we can do the same thing. It's not just those who are physically present with us. We live in a world where we can surround ourselves with wicked people and never leave our homes. By what we allow to, what we watch on television, what we listen to in music, magazines and books, internet, our iPhones. I mean, we literally carry around a pipeline with us at all times that could, if we so chose to, allow a pipeline of 24-7 filth, perversion and wickedness to surround us at all times. You see, you don't have to go anywhere today to surround yourself with wickedness. You can sit in your most comfortable chair in your living room with a bowl of popcorn and you can surround yourself with wickedness and vileness and things that are perverse. And if you want to destroy your life and your testimony and your family, just go right ahead and do that. Because it will impact others. It will impact you and impact your family. As we're about to see, because sad to say, the story gets worse. But how in the world? Let's read it. I don't want to, but let's read it. Third thing to do to destroy your family. Don't bother to pass on your faith. Pick up the story at verse 12, chapter 19. Then the man said to Lot, the angels, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters? Whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place. 
For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now look at verse 14. Talking about don't bother to pass on your faith. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, so those who had married his daughters. He spoke to his sons-in-laws, those who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Notice what it says. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. They had no respect for him. They didn't believe him. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. And then Lot said to them, Please know my lords. Lot literally being drug out of the city in verse 19. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. You've increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. His thinking is warped. His mindset is warped. Verse 20, see now this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, see, I favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground, but his wife, look at verse 26, his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. He looked and behold and smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which he had dwelt. And I wish we could stop reading right there, but we're about to get to what I think is one of the worst parts of the story. You remember the daughters that he offered to the wicked, perverse, vile people earlier in the story? I want you to see what his choices resulted in. Look at verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now remember, he's lost his whole rest of his family. His wife's a pillar of salt. His daughters and sons-in-law, I don't know how many kids he had, but they're all, they all were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's just Lot and his two daughters, and here they're in a cave. Verse 31. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you will go in and lie with him, that he may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And I want you to notice verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. 
The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. I don't know how many children he had, but he lost them all. He lost a lot of them apparently in the city, and he lost the other two in sexual immorality in the cave. I don't know how much Lot told his family about the Lord or the faith. I don't know how much he talked to them about Jehovah, but apparently not enough. It was Lot who made the choice to bring his family to the city in the first place. It was Lot who chose, even though he was vexing his righteous soul, who chose to stay in the city. It was Lot who watched his family go further and further away from God and Jehovah, and yet he chose to stay. Can I just talk real bluntly with the parents and grandparents for a moment? Can I just tell you today that your children know whether or not your faith is real or not? You can fool everybody else. You can fool me. You can fool this church. You can fool your neighbors. But you cannot fool your family. Those who live under the roof with you, they know you. They know your testimony. They know what you really believe. And if Jesus Christ is not a vital, living reality in your life, why should he be so in their lives? If you can take or leave church, don't be surprised when they leave church. If you could care less about the Bible and prayer and stewardship and living for Jesus, then why should they care? You see, we're modeling before them what we really believe and who we really are. And you cannot fool them. They know you, just as my children know me. And Lot's children knew him. And I find what a sad testimony. He goes out and he warns his sons-in-law that those that had married his daughter said, let's get out of this place. God's going to destroy this place. And they laughed at him. They said he's joking. So I come back to that opening part where it says, to our forefathers, our faith was an experience. To our fathers, it was an inheritance. To us, it is a convenience. To our children, it will be a nuisance. Because if your faith is just a convenience, if it's just something you say, well, it's convenient, I'll go. If it's not, I won't go. If it's convenient, I'll do what's right. If it's not, I won't. Then don't be surprised when your faith is a nuisance. And if that's not going to be true, if it's not going to be a nuisance, then our faith has to be more than a convenience. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said it this way, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he's a Christian and most of all, his family ought to know. I mean, let's be honest about it. Do your children and grandchildren ever see you pray, read your Bible, give, trust the Lord? Do they ever hear you talking about the Lord? I mean, on a daily basis, talking about what God has done, talking about your testimony. More than just, it's Sunday, we go to church. No, it's Sunday, we're going to church because Jesus Christ is my life. He's the most important thing, the most important person in my life. And I want the same for you. I have no greater joy as the Scripture says, hear my children walk in truth. And not, when it's, not just when it's convenient. But it's a settled conviction that Jesus Christ will be first place in my life. I'm afraid. I'm afraid in the years to come, if the Lord tarries and we're still here, I'm afraid there will be many, many children that are going to walk away. I've already watched many walk away. Walk away from the faith. They don't come anymore. They don't, they don't have anything to do. Well, I think a lot of it goes back to home. To home. Because if faith is nothing to mom and dad, then why should it be anything to me? 
So how far can you go? Here is a man who's a righteous man and he's sitting in a cave and his own daughters are pregnant with his sons and grandsons. Think about that. That scares me to death to realize that the choices we make, we can get so far away from God. And he's a righteous man. Our choices matter. Which brings me to the fourth thing. You want to destroy your family, resist God's working in your life. Just resist it. Because that's what he did. It said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the people. He tormented and vexed his righteous soul day in and day out. And God obviously was working in his life because he couldn't stand what he was seeing, what he was experiencing, and yet he resisted God's working. When they went in to take him out of the city, what did he do? He said, oh no, I can't leave. They had to drag him out of the city. Drag his family with him. They said, flee to the mountains. Oh no, I can't go to the mountains. Let me just go to this little city. Over and over again, he resisted God's working in his life. Churches are filled with that. Week after week, people sit in church pews just like these, just like we are here. And God, the Holy Spirit, speaks to hearts and people resist. And God says, there's this sin in your life. They resist. God says, get right about this. They resist. They resist. They resist. But as Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote, everybody, sooner or late, sits down to a banquet of consequences. Let me just tell you, it's not a pleasant meal sometimes. And Lot, this righteous man. What do you think he thought? What do you think he thought as he sat in that cave? His wife's a pillar of salt. His other children are dead. He's looking out over maybe the smoldering remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe they were not smoldering, but they were just there. It was just gone. It was just abolished. It was just condemned and brimstone and fire, and he's sitting there in the cave. He looks over and he sees his daughter, his oldest daughter is pregnant with his child, and his younger daughter is pregnant with his child. And there he is at a banquet of consequences. Do you think for a moment Lot ever said, you know what, if I could just go back, if I could just go back that day when, when I said, I'd take that land and said, you know what, I, I just, if I could just go back. I imagine it was a time filled with remorse, and sorrow, and regret, and I pray repentance. Because he was a righteous man. But he made choices that were so poor that it destroyed his family. You and I realize, I hope, that even though you're a Christian, you can make choices that will destroy your life, your testimony, your family, and your ministry. One choice. So what do we do? If we're wise, we'll look at Lot's life and say, you know what? I'm not going to be guided by selfishness. I'm going to be guided by Christ-likeness and putting others better than myself. And I'm not going to surround myself with wicked people. I'm going to be careful of what I watch and what I listen to, what I allow in my life, my internet browser, on my phone. I'm going to be careful about what's influencing around me and my children. And not only that... I'm not just going to just, just go through the motions. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk to my kids about what's really important in life. And not only that, when God convicts me of something, I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going con- to confess the sin. I'm going to get right about things. And if things are not right in my own life, I'm going to even go to my family members. 
And when I mess up and I do wrong, I'm not going to say, would you please forgive me? I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I acted that way. Please forgive me. I'd ask God to forgive me. Would you please forgive me? Because I want to make sure there's no tension in our life. And I'm willing to give up some things that I could have and I could do. Why? Because I love Jesus and I love you and I want you to love Jesus. So that means I can't do everything. I can't go everywhere. I can't be everywhere. Because I'm going to make sure that I'm guiding my family in the ways of the Lord. A minister once asked a group of children in the Sunday school class a question. And you know, whenever you do that, you never know what the answer is going to be. But he asked a group of questions. Children in Sunday school, this question, why do you love God? Why do you love God? I don't know how you would answer that question. But he got a variety of answers, obviously, from children. But the one he liked the best was from a little boy who answered the question, why do you love God? He simply said, I guess it just runs in our family. I guess it just runs in our family. God help us. That loving God would run in our families. That it starts with mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and comes down through where Jesus Christ is real and He's living and He's the most important thing, the most important person, I should say, in our lives. May God help us. Father, We are saddened and sickened by this story. You've given it to us that we might learn lessons and not follow in the steps of Lot. I don't know what you're saying to people at the service today, but I know your Holy Spirit's at work. Lord, we know the beginning point of living a life for Christ is knowing Christ. So if anybody here today does not know for certain that their sin is forgiven and Christ is their Savior. May this be the moment where they turn from their sin and place their faith completely and totally in You. And then, Lord, for those of us who know You, would You help us right now to be submissive to the Spirit's working in our lives, to not resist Him. So, Lord, speak to our hearts right this moment, personally, individually, Help us to hear what the Spirit is saying. Maybe He's putting His finger on some sin or some choices in our life. Help us to be submissive and obedient and respond appropriately to what You're saying to us. Help us to live for Christ, to make Him known. Father, the family is under attack in our world. We're feeling the pressure. Help us to live for you. To live the truth and to speak the truth in love. I pray for families. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are worthy. You are great. And greatly to be praised. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, we're going to sing a song that um, I think you have done pretty well.
talking about the greatness of our God. And that's why we live for Him. That's why we sing for Him. Because He's great. And again, we're not going to come meet you down at the front this morning, but if you would like to come to the front and pray, the altar is open here, or you can do business right there in your seat as you pray to the Lord. Would you stand with us and let's sing praise and honor to the Lord as we close the service. Great are you, Lord.